I have two parts to my reflection this evening for us to reflect on together. The first is about the meditation process. All meditation processes, whether it's concentration practice or Vipassana mindfulness practice or the Brahma Viharas. And that is that all meditation evokes and requires a certain degree of concentration. It's just the way it is. You are going to get more concentrated if you meditate. It's also true that it creates the opportunity, a very positive opportunity when well handled, for various somatized experiences to arise, coming from the body or coming from the mind. Therefore, since these experiences can arise, it requires that we have a great respect for the power of meditation, that we're humbled in our approach to it. We're very respectful of it, and we, we go to our edge, and then we back off as we practice. Go to the edge, and then come back, so that we're not staying on the edge in any sense of that word as we practice, that there's some level at which we acknowledge what we don't know that can arise in our practice. It is amazing just how much everything gets concentrated. It's why the food tastes so good, because you're so concentrated that you can really get all the taste. You can really make those distinctions. Again, that's one of the positive aspects. But you can have a wanting come up, like something that you're, you're alone in your life and you really want someone, and you've struggled with this some in daily life, but on retreat, you think it's going to kill you because you're so concentrated. Or you did something at one point in your life that was um, uh, not so wise, that was maybe harmful to others. And the guilt, the guilt, the, the shame can be so intense. And likewise, with old memories in terms of trauma in your past, any kind of emotional, psychological, sexual, parental trauma, And even old injuries, old physical injuries and illnesses or operations. You can can be sitting here on retreat totally minding your business and suddenly you're having an experience of the operation you had around your appendix or something else and you're totally into the feeling of it and it's big and it's, it's really scary. Or some, some real fear from the past that has been a pattern of your mind. You can fall into that pattern of the mind and you're so concentrated that all that concentration pours into that, that fear at that moment because that's the predominant experience. And the concentration will tend to pour into what is the predominant experience. And so there you are. And it can really shake you. And, and for all these reasons, we're respectful of it. We, we understand that uh, we need to develop our capabilities to attend to this level of experience. Likewise, there can be huge energies run through the body. Uh, some of you report this in meditation. They can, they can be energies that are located in one part of the body. They can move around. It can be 
diffusing the whole body, they can be coming with quite regularity, they can be periodic, they can vary in intensity, they can appear to maintain the same intensity. All of these different kinds of phenomena of mind in conjunction with the electroneurological system can arise and again need to be attended to. We have said a, a number of different ways here in the retreat about the importance of the container. Two things happen. It's not just that they're more intense. Because th- th- your mind is so concentrated when it uh, goes into papancha mind, that is proliferation, papancha proliferation, all of these associations and story-making and fantasies and imagining the worst, and you can go, I'm never going to get out of this. This will never end. This, this pain of, of having my heart broken when I was 28 years old, is, you know, this is, I'm, I'm going to be like this for the rest of my life now because it's I'm so intense I've never really opened to it before, or whatever it is. That, that, that kind of association that, uh, into the three times and all these thoughts and associations of the three times it's, it's just a phenomena of mind. We need to know that. We need to know that in order to be respectful of the process we're in. We're asking to receive more power in order to have more insight. And so we, we want to be worthy of receiving that power. All of the ritual, the taking refuge, and so forth, is, and the, the sila and the dana, the generosity, all of this is part of what creates the container that allows us to allow all of this to run through us. It's, it's a significant thing. So part of the skills we're learning is, one, to know to absolutely know down to our little toe that every mental event is one more arising and passing. Every event, no matter what it is, it will have a beginning, a duration, and an end, just as when Sally asked you to notice that with the breath. So it is with every phenomena. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And so sometimes we need to know how to be with this phenomenon because it's bumpy. It's, you know, it's bumpy. It's like uh, going across, a, if a big boat's gone through the wake and you're trying to ski, you're water skiing, and you crawl across that wake, there's a lot of, there's a lot of bouncing in that. And that's, that's how it feels. You can get really knocked around. That can have a physical manifestation. It can have an emotional manifestation. It can have a very quiet inner, energetic feeling of it. This is just part of the practice. It's normal. It's standard. It's, it's quite okay. So we, we, we learn how to be with that, and we understand how to interrupt it if there's a pattern of it so that we, we feel, okay, this is more than we want to do right now. So we are either able to redirect what our mind is doing. We shift attention, directed attention, very important. When you're applying your attention to the, to the breath over and over again, you're learning how to direct attention. This is very useful in Vipassana. And this is just as, as likely to come up in Vipassana as in concentration practice. So you learn how to, to interrupt in some way. You can redirect attention, or you stand up, you open your eyes, you, you, do, you do another kind of practice, you go to the Brahmavars, you do what's necessary to keep yourself in balance. And if, if, if it's a continuing pattern and you're having trouble working with it by yourself, you seek out one of the teachers. And then also, uh, 
and this is particularly true in the concentration retreat, but again, it happens lots of other places because you can fall into a concentrated state in the midst of any Vipassana retreat. You learn how and you develop the trust that if you're in one of these bumpy places that you know how to wait, to wait it out. You trust yourself. You know that papancha mind happens. So you don't trust the, the momentary papancha mind and the faster the thinking and the more wild the thinking, the less you trust it. Because you know, you've been told, you've seen, you've heard, you've read that these things just come and you are, you are staying with it and it, you will come out of it in time. Uh, uh, some of us have been in those states where we had to wait something out. It, we just had to wait it out. Um, uh, uh, there was a... Uh, I, the, my teacher, Ajahn Sumedho, tells this story about how one time... What was her name? I can't remember her name, but a woman's name came to him. Have you heard this story? No, it's not Gertrude, it's something. Anyway, let's say it's Geraldine. It, it's, like, it's, it's like he's sitting there, you know, and in, in, he's having a beautiful concentration re- retreat. And he's, he's there, he's a monk, he's been a monk for some time. And then, th- then there comes this question, who are you, Geraldine? Who are you to me, Geraldine? He doesn't know a Geraldine. Five days, five days this goes on. That is the role of the mindfulness, to wait it out. You wait it out. So people will have, you know, a, a song start to play in their head, and it plays and plays and plays. And one one uh, colleague of mine, uh, this one movie started playing in his head, and every frame would appear, and it would go all the way through the movie, then it would start over. <laughs> and it was a movie he really liked until that happened, and now he hates the movie. But he knew how he knew how to be with it through his mindfulness. He also is a, a, a person who, although not so much after all these years of practice, but during the first ten years or so of practice, he would get into a concentrated state where he would his his whole system would get very wired, very high frequency. So literally, his hair would be standing on end, <laughs> which can happen. That has happened to me. But his would stay there; it would not like settle down. And he would have to wait it out for some period of days because there was, and there was other you know, manifestations of that high-frequency energy running through him. That's the role of the container. We're all providing the container for one another, but you take responsibility for your, your container yourself in, in this way. And um, uh, any questions about that, you're... you're uh, welcome to ask me tomorrow morning, but there's um, there's uh, these certain balances I want to mention to you in terms of how you work with the container. Energy and concentration can be really the source of the problem. There can be uh, too much energy and too much concentration, and that can create the the most uh, uh, challenging states. There's, there's balancing energy and concentration other ways for practice that I'm not alluding to tonight. But in terms of when things get rough, it's too much energy and too much concentration, particularly 
when there is too little mindfulness and too little equanimity. So the mindfulness and the equanimity are what contain that energy and concentration. If you don't have sufficient mindfulness or you don't have sufficient equanimity, then you would want to interrupt the building of something like this if you can and want to move your attention away from it and so forth. So energy and concentration in excess together, uh, you could argue that they need to be but, but just lower it anyway, but sometimes not. Sometimes it's fine that they're roaring both, but then it's very important that the mindfulness, that's this observing quality that can, that can know what's happening right now and knows that it knows what's happening right now, right? Mindfulness doesn't just know. Mindfulness knows that it knows. This moment is like this, the Venerable Sumedho says. This moment is like this, and that combines that knowing you know with the equanimity. This is just another moment that's arising and passing. So if, if for those of you who, are, uh, who consider this your lifelong practice, if you come away from this retreat with this understanding, then this alone would make the retreat worthwhile because it's a, it's a critical understanding and it allows you to uh, 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 be daring, to really like uh, go forth because you have a base, you have a, you have a, um, um, a mechanism, a, a kind of, you're, you're protected. The other piece to complete the protection is clarity of intention. Clarity of intention. When we don't know our intention, something can come up that's not so skillful or wholesome, and either our conscious mind or our unconscious mind is like a moth to the flame. <laughs> you know, it's so exciting, it's so entertaining. And the mind likes to be entertained, and, you know, and it's got this ooh feeling to it sometimes. Our clear intention in this practice is liberation. Our, that this moment we're seeking liberation. This moment are we causing harm or not causing harm? We intend not to cause harm in this moment. We intend in this moment to be moving towards liberation. And that's our intention. And that is, that's, the, that's the real guidance. We're not seduced by powers. We're not seduced by trippy experiences. We're not, we're not seduced by being special. We're not seduced by our old wounds. None of that. We're not seduced by our fears of the future, whether it's aging or death or being alone, whatever it might be for you. We're not seduced by those. We know that all of that's Mara. All of that's Mara. We have this clear intention. It takes time to gain clear intention. It takes reflection. This, if you are committed to this as a lifelong practice, then this clarity of intention is wholesome and, and, and karmically wise. And so I really encourage it. No, no matter your experiences to date, and if you go, well, I don't have anything like this, and none of that ever happens to me, your experience in, in meditation is not yet over. <laughs> so don't make assumptions about the future. Again, if you want to ask questions about this tomorrow morning, you can um, make a little note tonight and do so. The original uh, topic for this evening, that was going to be all of the topic, I titled The Subtleties, Confusions, and Controversies of the Jhana States. That's a 
just a few minutes worth, right? I'll just cut it down to 10 minutes. I want to start in an unusual place, a place that I have never actually heard anyone start to talk about these jhana states. And that is to talk about movement versus stillness. Two or three times we have pointed out in the guided meditation this movement towards stillness in the concentration practice. The, uh, uh, in some ways, most accurate word for the jhana is non-distraction or non-disturbance. Non-distraction, non-disturbance. There is a movement from movement to stillness. This is this paradox. We can't get there except through movement. But where we're headed is to a stillness. And each jhana state is successively more still. It's also a movement in each jhana state from coarseness to fineness. So everything gets more and more refined and more and more still in the mind. The more refined the mind, the more potential for stillness there is. The more stillness, the more potential for refinement. It is not always true that those two are together. Uh, but there is that, there's that general correlation. I'm going to make a number of little side remarks about like that when I said that they go together and support together, but it's not always true. Because you're at varying levels of practice, and I have planned this talk so that each of you, as best I am able, can hear what at your level of experience would be useful to you. So don't try to um, figure out something that doesn't make sense to you. But if, it, if there's a certain like, oh, I get that in some way, then you can reflect on it. So this movement, from movement to stillness, it so ties in to the Vipassana practice, to the Four Noble Truths, because we're always dealing with uh, what happens in the mind and how we get to suffering. We see this in terms of dependent origination. This is from T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets. Desire itself is movement, not in itself desirable. Love is itself unmoving, only the cause and end of movement. Timeless and undesiring, except in the aspect of time, caught in the form of limitation between unbeing and being. Desire itself is movement, not in itself desirable. This is, the, this is where we get to Tantra and the second noble truth, the clinging, the clinging. We get caught in our desires, we identify with them, we get attached to them, and we begin the samsaric circle. We take birth in our desires. If I only had this, if I only didn't have that, then I would be happy. And so it all begins. We can't accept conditions as they are. We're demanding that conditions be different. And our mind's all agitated. It's caught in this wheel of suffering around the agitation of this movement towards or movement away from something, what I call the reactive mind state. So 
there's a kind of uh, paradox in this because life requires movement. If there's not movement, you're dead. The air isn't moving, you're dead. If the mind isn't moving in terms of some the 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 the, the, the physical apparatus of it, then then your, your your brain's not alive. You can't function. And yet we are moving towards a kind of stillness. A stillness in awareness. A stillness in consciousness. The understanding of that is uh, quite broad and interpreted in many different ways by different teachers. But this freedom comes when there is not a movement based on the conditions, but rather based, as he says, in terms of uh, the love or our Buddha nature or bodhicitta, this kind of benignness. Of there, there is a, there is at least in my own experience, there's a kind of awareness, a citta, that 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 has that is the cause and end of movement, but is not itself movement, not itself movement at all, and that is the unborn and uncreated and unmanifest. That's uh, so. Uh, Penalizing, described, and which causes lots of debate among Buddhist scholars and versus experienced practitioners. I want to <laughs> I want to recommend three books for those of you who are interested in uh, uh, developing a kind of more uh, thoughtful, kind of intellectual, reflective understanding of this. One is Jack's book, After the Ecstasy, the Laundry which uh, has in various places in this, where he, he, he talks about this, this whole question of uh, we have these big moments, but then what, how, do we, how do we incorporate it in our lives? How do we live our deepest realization? And that deepest realization is far more than just an intellectual understanding. It is an energetic experience for some people, quite energetic. For others, not so energetic, but big chitta, big, big consciousness experience. Not so much intellectual, but this chitta consciousness, whatever that is, this profound uh, awakening moment. And uh, sometimes it's a combination of all three. So that book, and then because of the many things I'm going to be mentioning tonight, Richard's book on the experience of samadhi is such a, a thorough book, both of describing... The, the jhana states, but also because he interviews a number of teachers who have varying views about uh, about what these jhana states are, and you can read one after another. You end up having to read them more than once because they all start to run together. You wait, that's a, did this person say that? Or and but it allows you to take your own time of of getting in depth with this, and then with some degree of embarrassment, my own book, Dancing with Life, in relation to the third noble truth in which I talk about movement and the Buddhist teaching about all is burning and how we might understand all is burning. And I didn't, because this book was uh, for a, a wide audience, I didn't go into a lot of detail. That, um, but if you, if you start thinking about movement in terms of consciousness and consciousness or awareness that is not moving but that is awake, that is present, but has no movement in it, no movement at all. That gives you a clue. And that's what I'm pointing to in the Third Noble Truth section around that. 
and this can all of these jhana states in the end are not destinations the jhana states aren't the destinations they are skillful means they are conditioned mind states as richard and andrea and and and, and sally have all said in previous evenings they are conditioned mind states they are very useful uh, in varying degrees, and for each person it varies, for the purposes of liberation, for helping the, the insight that is liberating insight ar- arise, for an understanding of what is. It breaks, uh, it, the jhana states can break our fixed view about, that's a kind of a reductionistic flat view of the world. We start to see the world in many dimensions and we start, it, it helps us uh, gain a kind of freedom from our a tendency to uh, get attached because we realize, oh, there's more to it than that what I want and what I don't want. There's whole other levels, a whole other dimensions of experience. And so very useful in that way. Uh, so jhana, uh, one word, uh, again, is non-distracted or undistracted, concentrated, can be, as I said the other night in my first talk, it can represent a purification of mind. So you can think of this, the, the concentration aspect, which is mentioned in the third jhana, as this, this purification of the mind. And that through the purification of the mind, you could say then we go into fourth jhana, where the mind is in a state of, of more purification, of a, of a, so purified that it's... it's uh, very facile and very flexible, and when it that mind turns to insight, or even the memories or the qualities of purification that that's uh, brought out in us, then when we in another whole retreat turn to insight, uh, the um, the the mind is is has got that as as part of its conditioning, and therefore the insight it's more it it comes faster or it's deeper or or so forth, all of these different ways that it helps. Jhana is a letting go, a removing, a diminishing. Each jhana state, you've removed something more, except for the last one, and then I'll come to that. But the, the process of getting to the fourth jhana is a, a diminishing. It's, it's not really uh, so useful to think of achieving. And I know we go, I want to get first jhana, I want to get second jhana. But uh, the, uh, Andreas has told us the other day, if you will just come into contact with your breath, you just create a strong container for being with your breath and then relax in that container. You don't really have to do anything else. It, will, it all moves, you move towards it automatically. The mind's inclined to these more pure states. The mind is, is quite willing, once it gets over its habit, to start to remove things, to start to delete to purify, it's it's the 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 higher mind quality is like that. It, it wants to know itself. It wants to express itself, and uh, you can only find that out by working towards it. And so, therefore, the same letting go instructions that we do in vipassana apply in samadhi practice. At least in my view, we have talked each evening in some way about the five jhana factors themselves. And I will repeat them again. There is the vataka, this this aiming or or connecting, and the vachar, the sustaining of that connection. 
there are uh, numerous uh, interpretations of what the jhana states are that we'll talk about in a moment, about what is a jhana and what isn't a jhana. But even in relation to vitaka, there are all of these uh, disagreements. So is it... Is, is, is what you're doing when you're moving towards the breath, are you aiming? Is that really, if, if you organize, whatever the word aiming means to you, if you organize that way, does that get you to the breath? Or does the uh, connecting, does that get you more to the breath? It matters in some ways less what others think their interpretation of what the Buddha was saying, then that you use a word that brings to you an experience that works. So the word aiming can mean so many different things. You could have an association with aiming and rifles and you have, you have a you, bad disassociation with rifles and therefore aiming's not a good word for you, period. So use a word that is a good word. Connecting may be, sound like too much efforting, too much like uh, creating a self that's doing this connection. Then don't use the word connection. Use a word that is alive for you, that allows this relaxation of mind, that inclines your mind to be able to, to move towards and make the connection, to, uh, to make that, uh, to be there with, to be with in some way. I mentioned the first night that uh, others have said and I experience that in many ways concentration in all of its initial stages is continuous mindfulness. It's moment to moment mindfulness but it's just on one object and you're just, you're being mindful, being mindful, being mindful, being mindful, being mindful and then at some point it takes its own momentum and you don't have to be so mindful anymore because it's just happening. So that's the, ex- that's the energetic of the experience. What words get you organized for that? It would be up to you. So there is this ability to aim the mind or connect to a chosen object and then to sustain that connection. You can also think of it as that you're having to constantly renew that connection. And at least for a long period of time. And so not just are you staying with, but you're having to constantly renew. And that is how you're connecting. Many subtleties of this. And as you're doing this, you don't have to be in a very deep stage to examine this for yourself. You can go, well, what am I doing now? Is this, am I really staying with the breath? Is, this, is that what's sustaining? Or am I really connecting to it over and over again? Because it's all, the mind moment of knowing it is moving so fast that I'm having to connect over and over again because it, the mind moves and the person that was here that was connecting is no longer there, so I've got to connect again. Because uh, there are times in your meditation when you will see arising and passing so much faster than maybe anything you've experienced today. I don't mean like, you know, five times faster. I mean like a hundred times faster. It's like, whoa, this is the reality that I'm living in? I function in this? I'm certainly glad I don't see this when I'm trying to drive my car or, or to give a talk because I couldn't function. Because it's, we, we, we have, we're conditioned to function. So our, our brain limits the data input that we're aware of that allows us to function. 
the psychologists and all sorts of scientists know this in all sorts of different ways, from how you see to everything. I mean, it's, it's all organized to allow us to function. But in meditation, we gain access to the raw data itself. And so that can, that, that can be stimulating and help you stay with all of this. So aiming and sustaining or, or, or connecting and sustaining, and then this arising of the PT that we've talked about a lot, the sukha, this sense of well-being, the sweetness. Uh, uh, I actually use the word joy with that sweetness, but it's usually joy. Most people use joy with the PT, but the PT for me has such... Uh, coarseness to it that it feels too coarse for me to use that word joy because joy to me has got a little fine state like being wildly happy very excited that's coarse but this joy is quieter than that for me that's to give you an example of how the words mean so the sukha has a quietness it's not coarse the way that 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 uh, you can uh, the way the pt is and then the ekagata the 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 steadiness of mind, this, this equanimity of mind that involves some sort of a, a one-pointedness, a serenity. And then out of these factors, when they come into balance, sometimes spontaneously, someone somewhere in the world right now is walking down a street and they're going into a, a, some sort of a first jhana type state right now. T.S. Eliot, when he went to his freshman year at Harvard, he was walking down the street and he came from this whole line of, of, uh, of Christian uh, pastors. And so he had all sorts of charge around his religion because of all of this. He's walking down the street and he has an ecstatic moment. He's, that first night I read that poem about uh, Yeats in London in the same way, T.S. Eliot's walking down the street and bang, there he is. Kids, it happens to lots of kids. Many of you had this as kids. Some of you may have had it as teenagers. Some of you may have had what you would think is some version of this under drugs. The trouble with drugs is that there's not a clarity of mind. So you're getting some of the access, but not others. Not other acts. Uh, oh, by the way, that's one I'm, I forgot to mention. You, in terms of this thing about when you're sitting here and what can come up, you can have all sorts of unwinding in relation to altered states of mind that you've gotten in through drugs. And again, everything applies just like it's an old memory or an old uh, uh, trauma from a surgery or anything. It all unwinds. I wanted to be sure and mention that. And, and so, so. We, uh, we, we come into first jhana. Uh, f- first jhana has, well, in all the jhanas, if, again, if, to hearken back to the, my first talk, all of these jhana states, in my own experience, this is not in the suttas or in the commentaries, I'm making this comment, <laughs> it's each, each, they vary in intensity. In, intensity has to do with uh, the degree of felt experience of it. So you can have a, not have much felt sense of it. And you can be in first jhana and it's really a little small thing. Or it can be very intense. And the same with second jhana, particularly second jhana, I would say, where it can be really intense or not so intense. So that's, that's what I mean by intensity, how, how felt it is, how the felt experience of it. It can vary in duration from a very brief kind of moment to quite an extended period of time. 
and, and it's steadiness. It can waver a lot. So you kind of go in and out of it, or you're really there. And one of the things that you do is you learn to steady your concentration. And you just notice, oh, my concentration. I've got, I'm, I'm here with the breath, but it's wavering quite a bit. Oh, uh, and I'm, can I steady this? And so just like you would steady anything else, you learn how to steady it. And you've already, because you've steadied lots of things, including lots of your mind in various situations, you, you, you do know how to do this. You don't have to really sort of, you just have to intend and incline in that steadiness. You start to learn how to do that. And then there is the depth of the experience. And by, by depth, I mean the, uh, the completeness of the experience so that it is, it is so... It is so complete, nothing can disturb it. It is, it is like it's filling you up. Or it's not filling you up. There's, it's not that, you're not that deep into it. And then there is the scope. It's either really to a point or it's wider. Part of the, uh, in my view, part of the reason that there's so much confusion around jhana is because you can have this variation in intensity and and. Um, uh, and duration and steadiness and depth a lot. And um, um, how what people mean by that, what they want by it, and also how they're using it uh, can vary. If they're using it in a certain way, then it may need to be there for, for you know, three hours. If it's not there three hours, then it's, it doesn't meet the need for what they then are wanting to use it for and other purposes. Someone else, if it's there for a few minutes, that's, that serves the purpose. Uh, also, uh, uh, a person can uh, go through a, a very profound experience under one duration and, and depth and, and, and intensity, and then they think, well, that's it. But not necessarily. Maybe this other duration, depth, and intensity serves just as well in terms of the fulfillment of liberation. Not getting involved in the, the, all of those questions, but wanting to acknowledge this, because as, if you're going to get interested in this, it's going to be very confusing. I suggest to you that you not try to figure all of this out, not try to label this well, my, compare my jhana to someone else's jhana, or that person doesn't really know jhana, that wasn't really jhana, or all of this kind of thing. Tarnasar uh, uh, Bhikkhu has this uh, image of uh, referring to things as with a post-it note. You have a certain experience of concentration, you put a little post-it note there in your mind. Hmm, this was interesting. I'll, I'll remember this and I'll, I'll come back and reflect on it in relation to other experiences I'm going to have. And I'll say what those other experiences are. And what we're doing is learning how to bring our mind to more and more stillness, to have it more and more empty. As we remove things from our mind, the mind's more and more empty. And thus we get back to the emptiness of the insight, the, the, the emptiness of what arises and passes, that it's empty of self, that it's empty of permanence. It's, it's I've got this anatta quality. And so we're directly experiencing the emptiness that, uh, because we're, we're learning to note as our mind gets more steady and still and, and more empty, then we, we, we recognize the emptiness. We're, we're, it's helping to equip us for our, for our insight. In First Jhana, 
all five of the factors are present. So they're all functioning. They're all lit up. There's none, none of them have been removed yet. When we, when we, one way that, um, one way that you kind of feel it is that it's like, there's like a, some, it's like someone turned the channel in your mind or something. You're on a slightly different frequency. So, because you can be at access concentration, your mind's very steady and very, very steady, and you can really stay with the object. And then somehow it's like it just flipped over to one more channel. It's not like that much changed, but there's just, there's a different felt sense of it. And, it, and that felt sense in this system is defined by these five factors. You can have, a, in my experience at least, a felt sense that's very similar to first jhana in another system, which but a certain other factors would be would be present in a certain way, but but the, they they overlap enough that you get this. So we don't want to act like this is the only kind of uh, of meditation experience. These are the ex- that in our tradition that have been carried along this time. The Buddha, as uh, Richard was saying the other night, the the Buddha went and studied jhana with two other teachers, and he mastered their system of jhana. So we're, when, we don't want to get uh, fundamentalist, in my view, about this. So uh, uh, one of the things that becomes uh, true about that first jhana, because it, it, it's said that the mind is secluded, and it's, it's, it's secluded by the rapture and the joy of it. Because the mind, because, the, because you're still directing thought, at least in some systems, you're still directing thought. You know, you've, you're the the, uh, the applying and the sustaining, or the connecting and sustaining, are still there, or at least in the earlier stages of the first jhana. Again, there's all of this debate about it, but there's but the, therefore the it's there's not the mind is not yet unified with the object of meditation because there's some part of you that's still reaching over and touching it, or maybe. And um, this is this is in some of the suttas. There's not that um, there's not that connecting. You are you are permanently connected, but there's this kind of rubbing against. Uh, Upandita talks about the rubbing. There's there's still this rubbing, and that rubbing is disquieting to the mind. So it's it's the mind isn't able to just because of that rubbing. That's that's movement, huh? See, it all comes back to movement. Many different levels of this thing about movement. Really let it in. Don't try to grasp it. Just let it in. Hmm. All right, so there's that going on. Then some say automatically. You don't have to do anything. But automatically, if you stay with that, because of this uh, tendency of this higher capacity of mind to want to manifest itself, you will just automatically go into second jhana. Other teachers have told me to notice the coarseness of the first jhana, to notice the, the, the uh, efforting in the, uh, the movement, the friction of the vataka vachara. And uh, as you notice that, so the mind, once it notices that, it goes, mm, that's not so great. It then goes... You will find it your own way. And then in the second jhana, 
the vataka and chara are gone. And now the mind is said to be secluded by way of concentration. So you've moved to a, to a, 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 a finer level. Uh, uh, you, the, you, the mind is more empty. I just wanted to read the, these descriptions of the first two for you and you know, give you the, um, a little simile that's used. Quite secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states, a monastic enters and abides in the first jhana, which is characterized by rapture and pleasure born of seclusion and accompanied by thought and examination. That's the vitaka and the vachar. It is said that it is like, uh, it, the, the analogy is like a kneading bath powder, that you're, there's this, that vataka vachar, there's a kind of doing, there's a, and it's, the body gets suffused by this, you're working it, you're, you're, uh, it's like working loose a muscle that's tight or something, or uh, you could even imagine taking, making bread or something, there's a, you're, you're, there's a kind of working it, and, um, and so again, that's the coarseness of it. Then in the second jhana, With the stilling of thought and examination, he, he enters and abides in the second jhana, which is, kept, which is characterized by rapture and pleasure, born of concentration, accompanied by inner composure and singleness of mind, without thought and examination. So singleness of mind, the mind is starting to get more one-pointed. There's some singleness to the mind. And the analogy here, it's as though there were a lake whose waters welled up from below and had no inflow from east, west, north, or south and would not be replenished from time to time by showers of rain. Then the cool fount of water welling up in the lake would make the cool water drench, steep, fill, and pervade the lake. It's as though in this second jhana, it, this, this, this uh, fountain is of, of cool water is spreading everywhere and it suffuses the whole body just just on its own. Because the mind is more serene and more available, that is why, in my view, that the piti becomes stronger in the second jhana. Because it's, it's more, the mind is more available, and so you have more access to this, this large energy that can sometimes be there. Again, it can be very little. You may not even be noticing it when you have it, but it can be really big. That's because the mind has this, it's, it's more free now. It's not, you're not draining the energy off in terms of this applying and sustaining. And then you come to third jhana. And in third jhana, it's described as With, with the fading away of rapture, so that, that rapture, that piti, that was so strong, that dominates because it could, the second jhana, that it, it's fallen away. With the falling away of rapture, she abides in equanimity, mindful and clearly aware, feeling pleasure with the body. She enters and abides in the third jhana, of which the noble ones declare equanimous and mindful, 
she abides in pleasure. And the analogy is um, um, he makes the pleasure divested of rapture, drenched, steep, filled, and pervade the body so that there's no part of his whole body unpervaded by the pleasure divested of rapture. Just as in a pond of blue or red or white lotuses, some lotuses that are born and grow in the water thrive, immersed in the water without rising out of it. And cool water drenches, steeps, fills, and pervades them to their tips and their roots. So this this third jhana is a big feeling of joyousness. Now what is meant by body here is another question. The, the, it could be understood in many different ways. If the mind is completely secluded from the body, then it's referring strictly to a mental factor. If it's talking about being present during it, on the other hand, maybe uh, that maybe there is a kind of knowing that is present during the meditation of the third jhana, and there's the knowing of the rapture that's occurring. Maybe that knowing is known only on the immersion out of third jhana that you didn't realize, whoa, was that great. Different teachers teach this different ways. I cannot personally, and we talked about this at dinner, I can't personally conceive of how knowing is not present. Because if knowing wasn't present, how would you ever know it? You can't come out of it. And there has to be something, there has to be some way of knowing, even if there's no access to it during the jhana. And different teachers will absolutely tell you one way or the other. This is less important than your own experience. You Maybe as you go in, maybe third jhana initially, that you're very aware of it while it's happening, and you know that, whoa, this is, I'm, this is this great joy. It's so sweet, and it's so calm and clear, but boy, this sweetness, oh, is this the best? You know. But then as you get deeper, you lose any awareness of that. You'd lose any reflective awareness of that. Maybe. That's just one of many ways you could understand it. And then you go into fourth jhana. And in fourth jhana, that sweetness, which seems so great at the time, I mean, uh, it seems like, oh, nothing's better than this. I mean, like, this is it. I've really found what meditation's about. This is what you want to do. You want to be walking around with this in mind. And then, you, when in the mind gets more and more still, when it takes that sweetness as its object in that way, which it either does spontaneously or you have said on the front end, when I'm in third jhana, I want to take as my object of meditation the sweetness, the joy of third jhana. You start to discover, this is pretty coarse. I hadn't realized that, that this kind of quiet joy could be so coarse. Uh, this is really disturbing to the mind. There's so much movement in this joy. Who would have thought that this joy had so much movement, so much friction? This isn't, this isn't so pleasant. And the mind, which has become more still, is, is disenchanted. It loses interest in that sweetness because it's so coarse. Mind-boggling, huh? <laughs> and it automatically drops it and enters into this fourth jhana. Very interesting. It's like, 
what it's pointing out about your mind, our mind, the nature of mind itself, the mind, maybe, however you view mind. With the abandoning of pleasure and pain and with the previous disappearance of joy and grief, he enters and abides in the fourth jhana, which has neither pain nor pleasure and purity of mindfulness and equanimity. So there's just this, this, uh, this steadiness of mind and it, is not, it would not be characterized as pleasant or unpleasant. It, and, and it, when, in the teaching of the Vedana, in the four foundations of mindfulness, that there's pleasant and there's unpleasant, and then there's what oftentimes gets flattened out to be neutral. In its fullness, it's, Vedna is it's either pleasant or it's unpleasant, or it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And this ties back to this very state of fourth jhana. And it is a universe. It is a universe. This, this neither pleasant nor unpleasant. It's, it's like... A whole world, everything is seen and uh, uh, tasted, touched, heard in a different way. It's like everything is, it's like a new way of experiencing this neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And again, there can be varying intensities of it and so forth. And it, it, there's, it, the, the, you can come out of the state uh, per se and still have this, this trait of it. Uh, in, in, as your consciousness, and uh, some people teach that it is that the optimized place to do vipassana is to come out of fourth jhana and be in this state, and, and to experience fourth jhana. Other people say no, you go back to first jhana, and out of first jhana you practice. You can worry about that when it's when you have those kind of choices. In the meantime. Just to know that your mind is already of this nature. Your mind is already of all of these jhanas. You're not becoming something. You are just rediscovering what you are. This, this, the innate nature of mind. This is very reassuring because, you know, the state of our minds, many times we go, whoa, <laughs> there's, not, there's not any of this, this third John and fourth John in this mind. But that's just because the mind has been colored by the hindrances. So the very start of this process is when the mind becomes sheltered from the hindrances. Remember the first night I talked about taking refuge in the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha? The inspiration, the gratitude, the love of Buddha, the love of the Dharma, this, this kind of gladdening of the mind that happens when we, when we take refuge in these, when this is real heart space for us, that gives more power, more uh, steadiness of mind to keep the hindrances at bay. So this is how it works. It's all lawful in its own way. The the particular way you do the dance will be the way you do the dance. And uh, one person's description may really work for you. No person's description may work for you. You will have your own description of it. You move into this area and then it unfolds for you. And so we come back to this stillness. When things are neither pleasant nor unpleasant, the mind is so still when you're in the fourth jhana, 
it's very still. When you have that stillness of mind, you can do three things with it. You can hang out there for, depending on steadiness, duration, all of those things I told you earlier, you can hang out there for days or, you know, minutes. <laughs> it, it depends. You have a second choice, which is that you can go to the arupa, the formless jhanas. The first of the formless jhanas is endless space. To get there, in fourth jhana, you you are you then you then start to direct the mind. So you 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 uh, you direct the mind towards endless space. You can take a resolve in advance that when your mind's in fourth jhana you're going to notice uh, space or it, it, it may arise spontaneously as the mind sitting there at some point that space arises. Uh, there You can pop out a little bit. There's this whole question of can you pop out just to, for a little bit of, of perspective and drop back in. Some people say yes to that. Some say no. However it comes about and it uh, different ones of us would have different description of that. Suddenly you take in the space as, as your object of meditation. And it's really true. I mean, you, it is, your whole mind is filled with inner, endless space. That has uh, use later on in terms of Vipassana, but as an experience in itself, it's complete. Then you take endless space as your object and you notice, is consciousness, is, is consciousness larger than space? Is, is there a consciousness that's beyond space? And you, in fact, realize that there's... just Because the mind's getting more and more fine still. There is this endless consciousness. And the mind moves to this endless consciousness. And uh, it, that is now your object of meditation. Which, again, has use in terms of Vipassana later on. And then you go into, uh, from endless consciousness, you see the limit of endless consciousness and you go into neither perception nor non-perception, which I won't even begin to try to explain tonight. And then you go in from there, again, but that too has its limitation. And then from there you go into neither perception nor non-perception. All of these are actual uh, states. They're not... These are not theoretical things. They are actual experiences that can be had. As, as very subtle as all of that is in terms of the mindness, the, the mind and, and, and in terms of endless consciousness or uh, neither perception or non-perception, it's all still mundane. It's still of this world. The super mundane is the kind of awareness, the consciousness, the citta, knowing that which brings liberation. This, uh, so the chitta, the consciousness, is knowing all of this. But all of this is mundane. It's all of this world, which is very sobering if you've sort of had some far-out experiences. You know, the Buddha says, that's just mundane. <laughs> the super-mundane chitta moments are of a whole other order and not the, not the subject of this retreat. <laughs> um, so... Um, uh, one of the things that inspires me about all of this is the beauty of the blueprint, its internal cohesion, that it's 
accessible in varying degrees to each of us, maybe intellectually, maybe in visualization, maybe directly experienced in meditation, or some pieces of it or little tastes of it. And all of this then can inform us in our uh, insight practice and break us out of this belief that my immediate pleasant or my pleasantness in the three times is what matters in life. Because so, it's that thinking that pleasant matters, that getting what I desire and not getting what I don't desire is what the meaning of life is. We have to find some way to break that. Otherwise, we're caught in this perpetual movement. There is no stillness. We never find the stillness of mind from which we can discover this other. To end with Eliot. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards, at the still point, there the dance is. But neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. Literal, literal, not figuratively, not an analogy. Not an analogy. The literalness of what it is to be in relation to this world, to this mind in an awakened state, to be balanced in, to be grounded in, to be uh, experiencing from the still point of consciousness. The, The consciousness that has no greed in it, no movement of greed, No movement of aversion. No movement of the confusion and doubt. At the still point of the turning world, the still point of the turning world, arising and passing, everything is arising and passing, the truth of a Nietzsche. This is this world, this is the Nietzsche. This realm is a Nietzsche. Everything is arising and passing. Everything in this is made up of the five aggregates. There's no stillness. It's all moving. It's all burning. It's all constantly changing. At the still point of this turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards, neither moving away from something that's unpleasant nor towards that which is unpleasant. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards, at the still point, there the dance is. Collecting and unifying the mind to this stillness. Let's sit together for a moment in stillness. Take as your object of meditation stillness in the room, stillness in your mind, the predominant stillness. 
thank you for your, your very uh, strong attention. I really appreciated that. I, I felt our connection. It was quite beautiful. So thank you very much. And uh, about 25 minutes for walking. And we'll come back to meditation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.